Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and today I am so grateful to talk with Barbara Gisselson again. She's podcast 59, if you want to go listen to that first so you know all about her and hear more about her wonderful practice in international animal law, in local animal law, and in divorce, dog deaths. It is an incredible conversation we're having, and we end with how animal law now is cross-pollinating with other areas of the law so that they can work together to establish requirements and laws that will really work to protect our beloved animals, especially post-COVID. So come on, let's hear what she has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton of Hamilton Law Mediation and the Why Do Pets Matter podcast. I'm so glad everyone is here. And we are here again with Barbara Gisselson, my dear friend, who is already a member of my podcast crew. If you go back and listen to her uh, recording, it's number 59. She talks about incredible things of why do pets matter to her and how she got started due to a boat trip um, down the Yangtze. So go there if you want to follow up. But today, I am so grateful that Barbara's back with us to talk about the international um, view toward why do pets matter. She just had an incredible book come out with the um, International Society, which she's going to talk more about, uh, that we're thrilled to hear about animals and animal law. So without further ado, Barbara, tell us a little bit about why do pets matter internationally? Well, let's start out with the fact that not that many countries have done much to develop what I would consider animal law. And so when I uh, was asked to write a piece, this was for the ABA International Law section on uh, pets, I, I was looking what other countries could I include with regard to the development of the jurisprudence. And you would think that would be somewhat easy to find. No, it wasn't. No. I mean, I could clearly find, you know, I, I looked a lot in Australia and certainly they have states like we have states, so the law is not all equal, but because they have a different requirement for licensure, there aren't that many disputes about who owns the dog. It's sort of decided there. So they don't have the same kind of who owns the pet dialogue um, that happens in the United States. Uh, Canada ha has a developing jurisprudence somewhat similar to ours. Um, it's they haven't gotten to all the same places and they may take into account different factors, but at least they're looking um, closely at animal law and it continues to evolve there. You know, to a lesser degree, 
I found in England and France, <laughs> but that but those places kind of stand out as having jurisprudence at least available in English. Right. Um, I have I I'd had uh, friends in the Union International the Avocat uh, who had access to databases in French and Spanish, and they sent me things in French and Spanish. One day I will use, put them through Google Translate and figure out what they said. But I've been pretty busy with other things. and uh, But I'm pretty sure from the people I've talked to, there's no big, um, well-developed animal law anywhere. Every once in a while I'll hear about Israel. Um, it seems to me, uh, one of the things that surprised me in international circles is that Muslims in particular seem to be more advanced in animal law than a lot of other religions. And that wasn't anything I'd, I'd, I'd heard of or expected. And they can go on, uh, Muslims can go on uh, at, at a lot of uh, depths about that. So, um, you know, I keep learning new things all the time. And uh, I love that about you because you're always out there on the cutting edge, looking at how animal law is impacting people both here in the United States, but internationally. So you wrote this great article. Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, or actually it was a whole magazine. No, 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 no. Right now I'm talking about an article I wrote for the American Bar Association International Law Section, a shifty, and then I've written a book on pet law for the American Bar Association. Then shifting gears, I am the editor-in-chief of one of the leading international lawyer organizations. Uh, the leading lawyer organizations would include the American Bar Association, um, the uh, IBA in, in England, and the UIA in Paris. And I'm um, a person of influence, I would say, in the UIA in Paris. I started out, and this is hard to explain, I'll just say it. I was president of the biotechnology law section. I was president of the biotechnology law commission growing out of, of a speech I gave on human hybrids and chimeras, where I was really questioning uh, uh, species uh, transplants and that kind of thing. The kind of thing that's kind of in the news today over the kidney transplant with the pig and the brain dead woman at NYU. Um, but so I always brought a, a different sensitivity to the biotechnology law commission and had um, seminars around the world, like in China, where everyone was fascinated by some of the ethical issues. Then I became president of the U.S. National Committee for this group. And then I got brought in as deputy magazine to the Jurist International, which is their premier magazine. And then I got asked to be editor-in-chief. My predecessor did not care about animal law. was it too thrilled with having animal law articles in there. I got in one by me. I got in one by Joan Schaffner. I think that was it. And then once I became editor-in-chief, um, new, new ideas were coming. And so um, I made sure I cleared it with my editorial board, which I personally recruited from around the world, Japan, China, Macau, Senegal, Congo, Belgium, uh, England, uh, Mexico, Chile, I'm missing a lot of places, um, uh, Kuwait, anyway, all over the place, Algeria. And um, everyone was on board with doing our first issue with a brand new format that I had helped, that I was, I'd say the originating architect for, 
a completely new format to make the magazine more readable, more interesting. And it's kind of a halfway mix between a magazine and a law review article. And um, so the first focus issue would be on animal law. And so I'm now tapping the editors on my board to find articles in French and Spanish all over the place about animal law. So we did. We had, I think, eight articles from all over the world uh, with different issues. We had a leopard on the cover. Everyone in this organization that it didn't didn't really even know about animal law now sees it on our cover. And the articles are well-written. They're interesting. They're different. It Nobody probably knew much who read the magazine about it. And, and, and um, I've now brought in onto the board Cheryl Nolan out of San Diego, who is an animal lawyer, who is also brilliant. And so, you know, I have a magazine of um, about 25 editors, uh, two of them practice in the area of animal law, yeah. which I think is a big deal. And, and the other thing is because I do animal law and a lot of people in the organization know I do it. It, I, my own credibility brings, I think, credibility to the subject of animal law. Because people don't like, there's no murmuring, like, what's that? Or, you know, what I think of as the early days in the U.S. Um, a member of the Minnesota Supreme Court at the time when I started animal law told me recently that I was the subject of ridicule and frequently um, when I started doing this. Yep. That's not, I mean, I don't know about those people now and quite frankly, I don't care. Um, I'm, you know, I see myself in a global um, place and to the extent that people think it's funny that there's an animal law topic. Well, they probably have other views I don't agree with either. So I'm just not worrying about those people. Um, I'm doing what I think is important. And it's really important for the animals too, because animals now have moved so much further along because of research um, and because of people who have really delved into the see and being side of animals that really animal law has come. I'm going to disagree with you, Deborah. I think that that information was all there 20 years ago. I, I was looking at animal sentience issues 20 years ago. I was looking at egg, animal cognition issues 20 years ago. Um, some of the uh, people, not animal lawyers so much, were, were writing. I always felt that there was too much emphasis by animal lawyers on sentience. Like, oh, do they have feelings? I think the fact that they're really smart and have all kinds of intellectual capacity maybe not the same intellectual capacity that we do because we measure other animals are by, are they like us? Well, I don't think a dog's sensory input is the same as ours. They've got uh, ability to smell that we don't have. They have hearing we don't have. You know, we, we may have better sight than they do. I don't really care. We all take in information through different sensory modalities. But, you know, again, because we're sort of, egotistical as you know, the human egotistical side, we tend to value other animals uh, according to what, whether they look like us. Yeah. So like it's, it's news to us that an invertebrate is, you know, like an octopus, um, you know, they have more or less brains than all their, um, what it called arms. Um, and, and the other stuff, huh? Their tentacles, all their well, tentacles. I say tentacles, but somehow my brain's saying that I'm just not sure that's right. So we'll go with tentacles. But the fact that they've got kind of like um, 
a neural net kind of a brain yeah. where it's operating that's in perfect a place that's a perfect it. example neural net yeah. they have all of these legs that are telling them what's coming around them right so it's i mean so the more we learn about but i mean they knew about fish pain you know i think again 20 years ago so you know i think there's a lot of things that have been known but all of a sudden we've discovered them yeah, we rediscovered them. We knew them, but they weren't really taken. I think you're absolutely right. I think that 40 years ago, people were aware of these things. And just maybe in, in recent years, people have been more willing. Like you said, people might have been making fun of you when you brought this up at the beginning. However, now it's it's really come of age. It really is something that people are paying attention to because especially post-COVID, everyone recognizes how important animals are in the scheme of things for humans. At least that's that's what I've seen in my practice. Well, so certainly in my animal law practice, um, the number one driver for a pet custody dispute seems to be cohabiting couple. Probably three out of four times they're going to get an animal and the guy pays for the animal and fills out the paperwork. Although right. the intention is going to be both their animal, his name is literally, you know, on those papers. On the possession and, and, document, right. Yeah. And 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 if and if the woman paid him back or paid half of it or whatever, it might have been they had a joint bank account or she gave him cash or something else. But so right out of the gate, you've got a problem with ownership if they split. And so you have I, I give a lot of advice to um people that I'll just say in the position of the woman about what they might do to enhance their position. And uh, a lot of it's psychological. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't make enemies with him, you know? Well, that's what I do. I always say to clients who come to me, you know, to try to do um, alternative suit resolution over the animal instead of litigation, because then the judge yeah. just splits the baby or gives it to one over the other. I always go, you know, unfortunately your pet doesn't hate your ex. That would be really helpful if they did. Um, however, they don't. And so let's see how we might be able to work this out because maybe your dog doesn't like to go to the, you know, um, the kennel if you're on vacation. It Wouldn't it be great if you could give it to Barbara for those periods and maybe she can't take it full time. Uh, but that has to be, I always say, try to make that a prenup discussion. So here you are, you guys have lived together or a pre-relationship discussion. You're living together. You either have a dog before you live together or you have a dog um, once you're living together. How do you want to see each other when you still like each other? Um, sharing this dog going forward instead of when you don't like each other trying to decide that. You and I both know that's a terrible discussion to have. I don't like him and he doesn't really like the dog and he's only saying this to hurt me. If we can get that conversation out on the table before they dislike each other, it's a much easier discussion for the dog's benefit. And as a practical matter, I don't have those discussions. I get the after, um, but a problem that I see and see, it's very possible, Deborah, that different people come to you for mediation than call me. So I may be getting a completely different uh, impression of what's out there than you do. I mean, there, I, I'm a, sort of like, you know, sometimes people who select a certain college are the kind of people who would like that college and fit in that college. They wouldn't pick a different one. Right. Um, so the people who come to me are probably looking more to litigation. The people who come to you are probably looking more for mediation. So I don't see the same thing. A lot of times what I see is people who really practically can't be trading the dog back and forth. Right. One of the reasons is that 
um, jealousy, anger, you know, there, there's, there's enough problems between the two people that, um, you know, their, their parents wouldn't want them to have to see that other person on a regular basis yeah. uh, because of you could, you know, there's domestic abuse. There's earlier signs of that, those kind of problems, maybe not full fledged. Um, but I think that, you know, generally speaking in terms of what I see is better than one person have the dog and, one of the reasons they end up in litigation or are calling me is that they've had, you know, they've had the dog, let's say for by mutual agreement for a year, they are going to take the two week trip to Colorado, cut along lines of what you said and think, well, maybe he'd like to have the dog for two weeks and then they never get the dog back. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the discussion you have to have before you give them the dog. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't, I mean, they, they have had the discussion, but, they haven't had it on paper. They haven't had anything legally binding. So the once the one person has had the dog for a long, a long period of time, the other person gets it. It kind of wakes up all those feelings uh, for the other person, and then they may be calling the lawyer. You know, yeah. you no, know, I, I never signed the dog over to her. Blah blah blah. Right. Uh, so I think people have got to be a lot more careful contractually. But well, the other they, thing that I think is a problem with the prenup. So again, we're not necessarily agreeing. Yep. I think that um, people at the beginning of a relationship don't know the true colors of the other person necessarily. And because I see more domestic abuse than I, I think you do um, by the time, you know, things have, you know, gone downhill um, what, they would agree to if they knew what they knew it, you know, before may not be feasible in terms of, I'll just say, exchanging the dog back and forth. There's no order for protection out there. It hasn't gone that far, but it would have. I mean, I've done this long enough to say, give it another year and that line will be crossed. So I certainly see people that I think could do the kind of things that you're imagining, but they don't usually end up with calling me. Yeah. So again, I think it may just be partly that's viable for the kind of people who are drawn to go to a mediator for a first stop, not so much for somebody going to me where the uh, relationship split is a lot more serious and it may be disturbing. It, it really is interesting because a, a lot of the cases I get are with people who um, want to try it first to see if they can work it out like adults. Um, and then depending on how um, they have a conversation and, right. and how they approach it, because I have had people who didn't have any domestic violence in the relationship at all, but then start claiming domestic violence so they can keep the pet. Um, so I sit there oh. and go, you know, when we first started talking, there was nothing. And now all of a sudden there's a lot um, and tell me a little bit more about it. So I think that uh, it's, it's, what it is, is it's a serious matter for people who gets the dog. Um, it really, oh, I can so smell hard. a phony domestic abuse claim a mile away. 
Yeah. Um, so I can, can I, I've done it. Yes, they usually that. have the dog and then they say, I'm not going to bother. And, and it, it just is frustrating um, because it's, as you know, it's expensive to fight over the dog. Um, it's an expensive proposition. And so someone might give up the dog because they don't have the money to go forward after they might've tried a little bit of litigation or a little bit of ADR and realize it's, you know, a lost cause. And it's, it's, troubling um, to the animal because they don't understand why they don't see their mother or their father ever again uh, because of the breakup. And uh, it, it just is really troubling and, and, and difficult. So both of us practice in an area where it may come out well for someone in ADR or not at all, or it may come out well for someone in litigation or not at all, because I'm sure you've been on the losing side and on the winning side at some point. So someone doesn't get the dog and then, you know, it really is frustrating. So um, it's, it's something I always say, if you can, you're absolutely right. Uh, if you make an agreement at the beginning and then somebody turns out to be not so nice, that might come and bite you in the hiney. But if you can figure out that, you know, you're both pretty normal um, and let's see how we might be able to work this out. I'm so not a fan of uh, a week on, a week off, a month on, a month off. I'm really a fan of if if the dog is settled or the cat is settled somewhere or the horse or the bird is settled somewhere, that's great. And if there is a chance and both of you can agree and it won't do what you said, which was, you know, I'm going to keep it once I get it. That's always a troubling thing. Uh, I've had several clients who have done six months on six months off or they've done, you know, holidays. And at first, it was difficult, but they never had to see each other because the cottage industries of delivery uh, make it absolutely possible. They have a, a Google calendar. This is when Fluffy goes back and forth and they never talk to each other and they never have to see each other. And uh, several of them have worked out really well in the most um the ones that have the most animosity toward each other, it really happens that if they can find someone who is a good go-between, who can put the dog or cat in between, oh my God, it you would never think it works. The ones I think will work sometimes never work out. The ones I think this will never work out. I'm sure you feel the same way. And then they work out and you go, well, that's a head scratcher. I would never have thought that would have worked out. <laughs> But then it does. So it's it's a process that we both have worked in. But I don't want to miss out on you telling us a little bit more about the international magazine that came out and the articles, because I think in the international realm, the United States is a certain kind of animal ownership. And I think what you and I had spoke on before we got on recording was that internationally, it's a little bit different. So Barbara, tell us a little bit about dignity and constitution. That's something that's really important to you, I know. Well. Countries like Switzerland have incorporated um, the topic of dignity for animals into their constitution. And uh, the wording is tremendous, but the application of how that works to day-to-day -day, you know, enforcement of laws is still evolving. Um, it's pretty easy to go on the web and find out which uh, countries have modern constitutions that involve uh, dignity questions for animals. But, you know, I, I, I was writing on that about a year and a half ago and it's out of my head what all the countries are, but there's a lot there uh, internationally in terms of at least the constitutional level of trying to open it up. Sometimes the constitutions are ahead of the actual application um, of law on the books. 
So do you think the United States has kept pace with some of the countries or are some countries further ahead in um, adding dignity into their constitution with respect to animals? Well, India would be, for example. So there are actually animal rights in countries that have constitutions where there are animal rights under the constitution. In the United States, the constitution doesn't cover them. Therefore, you can't really argue constitutional animal rights. You can argue there should be animal rights, you know, but that's different than clearly there are rights right. um, emanating from the Constitution. I would make an exception in the U.S. with regard to uh, whether that could be a law. Uh, I, I, there are, I know I've read a couple cases that if Congress passed a law allowing it, there could be various laws that would kind of be the same thing is animal rights. It, the, the Constitution here doesn't prohibit the Congress um, from generating animal rights, but that, in fact, hasn't happened. Yeah, it's 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 a work in progress. I think most animal yes. lawyers would like to see that coming, but it's a work in progress. And I think kind of along the lines of what you said before about how COVID has affected us, I, I think there's a lot, I think there's a real um, belief in this country that animals should be rescued. I know that when I tried to get another dog, um, even six years ago, you know, trying to even find a rescue animal available surprised me. It was really hard to find rescue animals, you know, yeah. what, for, for the obvious places that I would have looked, you know, 10 years before. So there's certainly, and, and, and people are always, I've noticed kind of proud to tell you including clients I have for divorces, proud to tell you that they have a rescue animal, proud to tell you that they're fostering animals. Yep. It now, is. That may be because people who do that kind of thing pick me out to do a divorce because they like that about me. So that could be, again, you know, a, um, a skewed view on what the general public is like. But I, I really have, I don't think I can remember 20 years ago that, you know, that strong societal the value. People would make that distinction, you know, that yeah. I rescued this dog, that I didn't buy this dog. I rescued this dog. They didn't make that distinction. Right. And, and, and they, they point, they, instead of saying mixed brain, they point out it's a rescue dog, you know, with pride. So yeah. the fact that dogs need to be rescued, I mean, that to me is um, indicative of a value of the dog. Um, as opposed to the how much is the dog worth? How much did you pay for the dog? You know, rescue dogs are, are you know, I'm, I'm, I have an opportunity to do something great for another creature. It's really kind of a, I think it elevates humans um, that they see a duty to creatures who've been mistreated yeah. um, to turn their lives around. Or just had had um, owners whose lives uh, may have gotten away from them and they needed to place the dog um, in a new home, which is always better than than trying to uh, find a, a new owner. Uh, you can find it yourself or you can turn it over to a rescue or a shelter. Um, every purebred dog, every purebred um, uh, club has a rescue that helps you find them. So there are rescues out there. You just, as you said, sometimes it's hard to find them. And especially now during COVID, it's been difficult to find them. And, and I'd gotten rescue, you know, rescue dogs that I got before from the humane societies, one in Golden Valley and one in Coon Rapids. So that's where I looked again. It's like they weren't there. Yeah, and I yeah. think you're right. Some of part of the reason they're not there is that they were working with 
like breed specific groups. So those breeds would be out of there and, you know, there'd be different ways. I think there's, you know, specific pit bull groups that help rehome. Thank so God. Right? It, yeah. it may be that they're, they're kind of the, the center of the wheel or with the spokes. There's so up, many but people, I, yeah, yeah, working on this so that the dogs find their next home, that they're not languishing in a shelter or a humane society um, because there's such a broad gre- uh, reach now of different um, rescues, which is always good and sometimes not so good if uh, you know there's no checks and balances. There's but, all kinds of, there's a lot of good things to say about rescues and bad things to say about rescues. And, and the same about breeders, absolutely. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you. You had shared with me um, that you have some dangerous dog cases. And when you rescue a dog, sometimes if the foster um, or the rescue hasn't had an opportunity to really screen the dog, you might not know what they might not like. Um, and then they might become... Um, troublesome. So tell me a little bit about the dangerous dog issues that you've addressed. Boy, I just get every, every side of it. I've had people call me twice in the last month where their dogs were killed um, deliberately, uh, both in rural areas. Uh, In one case, it's long story short, they were able to find the grave with the dog's tags on the dead carcass. And, uh, and then the other one uh, it, it, from GPS, it looks like they were shot on the property of, you know, somebody by somebody else who had already gotten a call saying there was a loose dog. Yeah. So um, there seems to be, you know, from again, this is anecdotal, but it seems to me that there's uh, people who got got who knows what's wrong with people in the middle of COVID, but some right. for some reason they seem to be shooting dogs i don't know if it's a message to the world that they're mad or if it's that they hate dogs or what it is but i don't think the society is very well equipped to holding people accountable for dog killings so in a rural community where the real person is related to everybody and it's um you know where there's a lot of um, dogs who I'll, i'll just say are more not exactly street dogs but they're not for lack of better word dogs that live in the house. I think they're valued differently than quote dogs that live in the house. Um, But, you know, when you start to talk to people about what to do in these rural areas, um, the people who turned in the shooter might become, um, there may be payback against them. So there's all kinds of retribution that come. Right. Yeah. So it can can pose a danger actually to out the shooter, but I've, I've, I've gotten certainly more calls and, and I'm not walking through all the details and all the advice I've given, but about, I've, I've had more killed dogs in the last year than I've ever had before. People here, calling about killed dogs. Here in the I city. I mean, killed dogs by, by, by gunfire. Oh God. Yeah. So it isn't another dog biting another dog, but rather oh, this is gunfire. Yeah. This is gunfire, which neither, these are dogs that, that, that would logically be shot. These are dogs that are maybe near a boundary. Um, so maybe, you have the maybe ability crossed, maybe crossed into somebody's yard, but you know, but but we're for some reason wouldn't have posed a threat, right? Um, you know, but just their mere presence posed a threat or opposed a perceived threat. And in the cities, we have the people who have the animals for protection um, that can then um, often 
take well, a I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not. Oh, that's what I have. I don't have the rural. Have, but I'm just in, in yeah. rural Minnesota where I live. Yep. I think there are more, um, who knows what's wrong with the dog killers. I don't know if it's that they would have just killed these dogs anywhere way. Some of them I think would have, but some of it may be pandemic related and emotional problems for in the city. I still think there's a big difference on which kind of dog bit. Yeah. And I think there's a strong reaction to all those call it a, a pit bull or a bully breed. Uh, then uh, I'll just call it, say, Cocker Spaniel. You right. know, people or feel, Yorkie. You know, Yorkies bite Or Yorkie. Or Chihuahua, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these these smaller breeds aren't, you know, people maybe even feel a little silly to report them, but they can really cause an injury, you know, the puncture wound and all, or, you know, sure whatever. And, but, and sometimes you get the um, little dog who might... Um, uh, annoy the big dog and the big dog probably wouldn't have done anything, but the little dog got right. him right. and then That's the big right. dog turned around and then the big dog gets the, you know, the or if the little dog bit first, people may right. not pay attention, but if I've, I've also had a couple cases, um, I think both of them in the last few months, uh, you know, the, I'll just call it the idiot factor. You know, somebody's on a, on a narrow sidewalk, drunk people are walking past one of the drunk people, is being sniffed by the dog who's healing. Right. And the drunk person takes their hand and, and smashes the dog's nose away and he gets bit. Yeah. Yep. I mean, how stupid is that? Or a delivery person in tight quarters comes up behind the person with the dog going the other direction and passes them and gets bit. I just, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bites that I think are just foolishness. They're freak, you know, you, you just, you have to really be aware and people aren't aware. And these, are, these are dogs that wouldn't have bit if they had not been you in know, close quarters in a situation yeah. that they I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always say to people, you know, your dog is always going to try to protect you. Even if they're the sweetest dog in the entire universe, if they feel you're threatened or they feel threatened, they may act in a way that they could be 10 years old, never acted that way in their life, but yet they were put in a, a situation and you know, instinct takes over. And so yeah, it's there's a difference. You know, one of the things I learned when I started taking on dangerous dog cases with is there's a difference toward, I'll just call it aggressive biting, but right. a lot of the biting done in the dangerous dog situations, um, I learned from working with the behaviorists were in the category of fear biting. Yeah. That which is, is which is a hard thing to understand if you've never heard of it before. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, behaviorists have been on the podcast and they have oh, talked good. at length about that because it really is important to understand that. I like might- to know which podcast because I like to listen to them. Oh, God, I will let you know. I know. I Jeff- would. I'd love oh. to. Yeah. yeah, Jeff Nickel is on and he's from Arizona and he's a he's one of the only uh, behaviorists um, and Kathy Madsen's on. She's a behaviorist as well. And um, and Karis Nafty is on. So they're all on the podcast and they all are animal. I don't know if you post information on your podcast about and also check this out. But if you can post those names. Next Absolutely. I will send that okay. to you. So we're running out of time because I know you have okay. to be somewhere and I want to yeah. really respect that. So what's the last tidbit you want to leave Barbara with everyone, because you've spoken about such important things, international law, um, divorcing with, with pets, uh, and also dangerous dogs. It's, it's been such a wonderful conversation, rich conversation as always. So tell me what your last thought is for everybody who's listening here. 
I think there's a real need for um, young animal lawyers to join the bar associations in their state and get involved with legislation. It takes a lot of effort. It takes years of establishing credibility within a, a state bar association. You can't only do animal law, you have to do something else too, or you won't get the credibility. So you'll wanna figure out who the leaders are, you know, get on some projects with them. And then as you develop credibility, then you start to you get in laws passed like in California or Alaska or Illinois that, that the courts can take best interest of a dog, for example, into consideration when making um, uh, a decision about ownership or custody or whatever language the state likes. But you know, you've got to, I've always thought the, the, um, the animal rights um, viewpoint isn't as good as the we're friends viewpoint in terms of building relationships. Um, you may have a strong viewpoint, but you've got to be, for lack of a better word, a member of the team. I call it cross-pollination. So if you want to change an animal in real estate law, in matrimonial, in healthcare, in international, you really have to become part of that community as well as talking about the animals and listening because you'll find out more about how far you can go and how you can shift people's opinions if you become a part of their community, not if you're in the animal law group. That's right. You're talking at them. You have to be part of the, you know, That's uh, right. the state That's group. Right. Talking at people that we're good and you're bad, I don't think is a, is a winning political strategy. I think the strategy is when I started the animal law, uh, committee in the American Bar Association, I made sure that I had rural lawyers involved. I mean, I, I did my very best to have um, a cross section of viewpoints about animals in the actual animal law committee that I founded because I felt that with all those different viewpoints, you were more likely to be able to fashion resolutions that would have a buy-in with the American Bar Association. Yep. And the Animal Law Committee in TIPS, which is the one I started in the ABA, has passed many, many resolutions. And I think they got, you know, they got really good at uh, building consensus. And yep. uh, I think the, the pride of this 20,000 lawyer group called Tort Trial Insurance Practice Section, I think their kind of star committee um, has been Animal Law. Yeah. And, uh, and that's in a lot to increase... Um, there's not an international law group, but there's, you know, Harvard just got a $10 million endowment for animal law. There's a lot happening. Yep. Um, I think that are ra raising the uh, awareness and aware. collaboration, because it really is important that we bring people along, that we don't talk at them, that we talk with them. Yeah. Because going to actually help the animals in the long run because we're going to get there. And that's, you know, that's what I, I try to facilitate as well. So Barbara, I am so grateful you've been on the call, um, on the yeah, white. Thank you for inviting me. And if I'm we will proud of you what you're doing here too. You're, you've got a, a heck of a show going dear. I do. It's fun. And I Yo, love talking to treasure. movers and shakers like you, because it makes such a big difference. So until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton. Why do pets matter? We'll see you soon again. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. 
Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.